This morning, the sermon is a bit unusual. It's a bit different, and the reason for that is because I have an ever-increasing concern. I have an ever-increasing, ever-growing urgency, not only about the culture in which we live, but also about reaching that culture. I realize that the pulpit has been a bit schizophrenic lately with Christmas and pausing in Isaiah, having been in First John, and I wanted to wait until uh, next week when more people were here to continue First John. Uh, however, uh, it's important for us to pause and to, to ponder something like what we're going to talk about this morning, because you and I both know that this just, this just can't go on. This can't go on, and by this I mean the ever-increasing animosity and hostility that's reaching a breaking point in our culture. Because you feel that, right? There's that, this widespread, increased disagreement over just about everything. There, there is the inability of people who disagree to have a civil conversation about anything, it seems. This increasing animosity towards people whose views differ than their own. And the fact of the matter is, this just can't go on. I mean, you know that, right? You know that in a culture like ours, there is going to be a breaking point, and that breaking point is coming. You can feel it. Mark my words, in, in the engine of a culture like ours, it's going to overheat, the thermometer is going to break, and the results are going to be, and they have already been, disastrous. But you see, the thing that we have to understand is that one of the issues that, that's that brings all of this to bear. One of the issues that's brought about the, the thing that we are in the middle of right now is what is called a worldview. In many ways, this is a worldview issue. Not merely a philosophical issue, but it is a worldview issue. In other words, the reason why there is such profound, heated, sharp, hostile disagreement over issues that just feel obvious to us. They're just obvious. Like, abortion, like euthanasia, like same-sex marriage, like transgenderism, like gender pronouns, to name a few, is because people have conflicting, contradictory worldviews that can never, ever be reconciled. That's why. And you see, here's what you have to understand, is that for the most part, Western civilization, since about the 4th century, has had a generally Christian worldview. That does not mean that everyone in the West has been a Christian. That just means that a basically in Christian interpretation of the world has been the predominant worldview since about the fourth century. So for centuries, people just assumed that God is real. God is the creator. Man is in God's image. Sin is a real thing. Hell is a real place. There is an ultimate standard of right and wrong. That has been the assumed worldview in the West for centuries. The point is, those days are now over. It's over. You understand that? It's, it's, it's finished. Gone are the days when people started with God at the center of the universe. It's over. The Bible is no longer the assumed framework for which people understand and make sense of and interpret the universe. People no longer begin with the Bible as the basis by which they make moral and ethical decisions. It's over. It is a post-Christian culture. 
And what that means is, is that in a culture, when you have all these competing and irreconcilable worldviews and perspectives on, on the universe, heated conflict and hostility is inevitable. So welcome to the 21st century American culture, land of the free, home of the brave, and where God has been kindly asked to leave the room. Where am I going with this? What am I doing here? Well, what I'm not doing is a political gripe session about how great America used to be before we lost it to the liberals. That's not what this is. This is not going to be some time where we bellyache together about how we've lost our Christian nation, whatever that means, and as if that were even possible. Rather, my aim is to demonstrate this morning that there is only one consistent worldview that actually makes sense and accurately interprets the world in which we live. There is one. There is one. There's only one coherent worldview that actually makes sense out of what we see and answers the deepest questions of life, and it is when we view life through the pages of Holy Scripture. In other words, as Christians, through no fault of our own, it is all God's doing, but we alone have the only consistent, non-contradictory worldview. In fact, I'm going to argue that if you believe anything other than biblical Christianity, you are daily faced with internal, irreconcilable contradictions with how you view the world. In fact, I'm going to argue that comes not even from the whole Bible, but even from the very first verse of the Bible. The very first verse, one verse in the Bible gives us, can and does give us our world view and helps us see that any other world view other than Christianity is not only irrational, it is lethal. So you have to understand that there's no happily ever after if there's no once upon a time. In other words, without the beginning, you can have no meaning. And so that's where we're going this morning. So again, we are still in 1 John. I knew this morning would be a weird morning with many people gone and out and will be there next week, I promise. But the growing burden about the culture and the growing burden I have of reaching the culture necessitates that we pause and consider the meaning of life itself, the trajectory of which is set not only by Genesis, but even the first verse of Genesis. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see 10 Yes, I have 10 points. 10 inadequate worldviews that cannot and will not give ultimate meaning, significance, or satisfaction. That's where we're going. 10 inadequate worldviews that cannot and will not provide ultimate meaning, significance, or satisfaction. That's where we're headed. And yet, before we see even one of those worldviews, I just want you to see actually from the first verse of the Bible. We're actually going to spend a majority of our time in Genesis 1, verse 1. And from Genesis 1, 1, I want you to see four features of divine creation. So I have four points before I get to the ten points. So I have 14 points, okay? This is like two sermons, three sermons in one. You're welcome. Four features of divine creation that are the foundation to the only consistent worldview there is. So that's where we're going. Four features of divine creation that are the foundation to the only consistent worldview there is, then we will end with the ten worldviews. So, the first feature of divine creation is this. Number one, the time of creation. 
the time of creation. Look very carefully at the first verse of the Bible that you have read a thousand times in your life. But I want you to see it with new eyes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I know you know it. And I know that you know that it comes from Genesis. But the question is, why is Genesis even in our Bibles? What was it originally designed to do? You see, what most people don't realize is that in many ways, Genesis is designed to demolish a false worldview and give the people of Israel the only right worldview. That's largely what it's doing. You see, Genesis was written in 1446 BC. The people of Israel had just been delivered by Yahweh out of the prison of Egypt where they had been enslaved for centuries. And the last 400 years before God delivered them, they had been absorbing, get this now, Egyptian culture, theology, and thinking. Some of them were even worshiping Egyptian gods. And so when Moses started handing out copies of Genesis, as it were, to the people, their entire framework for how to understand the universe would have been radically altered. Genesis, you understand, would have been the disinfecting agent that would have flushed out all the pagan ideas that they picked up in Egypt. Genesis, you understand, would be the historical and theological backstory that would explain who God is, who they are, why they exist, where they came from, what the meaning of life is, and who is the God that saved them. Bottom line, Genesis became the interpretive lenses by which the people of Israel would make sense out of the universe and everything in it, and that is exactly what it's designed to do in you. And if time travel were a thing, I would buy a machine, and we would get in it, and we would travel back in time, and if you travel back far enough, eventually you would get to the point in history described by the phrase here in Genesis 1, known as, in the beginning. So look again at the text. Actually, look at the text. In the beginning, the beginning of what? We'll see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that interesting? History had a beginning. Time had a beginning. There once was a time when there was nothing. Then there was something, and it all hinges on that explosive phrase, in the beginning, three words in English, one in Hebrew, bereshit is the word, In the beginning, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there was something. Namely, an entire universe. And I want you to consider, just for a moment, the the mind-exploding phrase there that begins Genesis. Because those words have become so familiar to us that we have forgotten to ask the question, haven't we? The beginning of what? The beginning of all. What What is Moses describing here? And you know. It is the beginning of matter, the beginning of space, and the beginning of time. This is the beginning of space, the parameters and dimensions of the physical universe. This is the beginning of matter, the physical matter and substance and materials out of which the, out of, with which the universe is made. 
This is the beginning of time, the chronological sequence of events that shape and define the pages of history. Before this moment, there was no physical matter, no space, no human time, no universe, not even emptiness existed. There was nothing except the triune God, and there never was a time when he did not exist. So that phrase, in the beginning, indicates the very moment and the exact precise second that the universe and physical matter appeared and it did so as a direct instantaneous act of God which before this moment did not exist. Think about that. Because when it appeared, then the clock of history started to tick and the plan of redemption began. So don't you find it interesting that as people, we are so wired not only to contemplate the future, but also the past. See, people want to know. They want to know what's in the future, what's to come, where things are going for them in the future. But you see, that cannot happen if we do not know where we came from. We're never going to figure that out. See, we have to know where we're from, and where we're from is ultimately the sovereign creation of a God who has a plan unfolding in the world. You see, that's why the beginning matters, because without the beginning, you can have no meaning. So that's the first feature of divine creation. Which brings us to the second feature of divine creation, namely the God of creation. The God of creation. Look again very carefully at the text, which you know well. Look at what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see it? Grammatically, God is the subject. Grammatically, he is the subject. Isn't that interesting? That God is not only the subject of Genesis, but he's the subject of the entire Bible. Not creation, not angels, not human beings. God is the subject. He is the subject of Genesis because he is the subject of the entire Bible. And he's the subject of the entire Bible because he's the most important thing in the Bible. And he's the most important thing in the Bible because he's the most important thing in life. And he's the most important thing in life because he is the most important thing in the universe forever. Which you see, everything begins with God, not man. Everything begins with the creator, not creation. If you reverse those and you make man the center, the results of that are absolutely disastrous which is exactly what we're seeing even as we speak. You see, God is not some footnote or have some supporting role in the drama of salvation. No, he is the star of the show, the main attraction on center stage. He himself is the plot and the purpose and the point of everything. And it's true, there isn't a lot that you can see about God only from this one verse in the Bible, but there's actually more there than you would think. In fact, there are three attributes, perfections of God that we can see from the very first verse in the Bible. For instance, number one, we plainly see that God transcends his creation. He transcends his creation. He is transcendent. Meaning what? That means that God is not a part of, but he is supreme over his creation. He is not limited by, he is infinitely exalted over and separate from his creation, which is exactly what Paul told the stuffy Greek philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Remember the scene? 
That's an incredible scene. I mean, what a crowd to preach to. The most brilliant minds on the planet gathered all in one place. Here they are with their degrees and their PhDs and all of their philosophies. And here is Paul walks in and he says this to them. Listen for the transcendence. This is from Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. He said, Now the God who made the world And all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. That's incredible. The very fact that God created everything means that he is in need of nothing. There's nothing lacking in God that creation provides. There are no deficiencies in God which creation supplies. Rather, rather, why did God create? What was happening there? What was happening is that the joy of God in his own perfections exploded, overflowed into a combustion of power that spoke the universe into existence. He is transcendent. But number two, we see that God precedes his creation. He's not only transcendent over his creation, he precedes his creation. That is, God eternally existed before his creation. Because when it says, in the beginning, God created, Moses wants you to see that God was there already at the beginning. When the beginning began, God was there at the the beginning because he never began because he always existed which is exactly what psalm 90 verse 2 tells us before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are god and think about how practical the eternality of god is this is practical this is practical Because the best proof, you see, that God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began to exist, but has existed forever. But there's a third perfection of God we see in Genesis 1, and it's this, number three, God is sovereign over his creation. He's sovereign over his creation. And by sovereign, I mean control. I mean authority. I mean, if God had the power to cause the universe to exist out of nothing, and he did, then you would think that he then has the power to control everything that takes place in that universe, and he does. There is not one square inch in all the universe where God does not say, this is mine, and I rule it, and I am sovereign over it. You make a vase in pottery class, that vase is yours to do with as you please. And the very fact that God created all things automatically means that he has authority over all things. The entire universe and everything it contains is his. It belongs to him. He is its rightful owner. His house, 
His rules, he calls the shots. The entire universe is his jurisdiction. And and everything that you have is loaned to you, including the very breath you just took, because God is sovereign. And you have to understand, without God, here's why this is so important to worldview, without God at the supreme, all-satisfying center of all things, everything loses meaning, significance, and value. Without God at the supreme, all-satisfying center, there is no meaning. I mean, why, why do you think that at the end of a book like Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Why did he say that? He could, he could have called God a number of things, but he called him creator. Remember him. Remember your creator. Why? tell you why because the fundamental starting point of what should define us is not our hobbies our interests our careers the things that make us feel significant even our families what should define us at the foundational level is that we were brought into existence by another the question is is that is god that for you Do you remember your creator this morning? And by that I don't merely mean do you merely acknowledge intellectually his existence. I mean is he the all-surpassing treasure and delight of your soul? Because that is exactly why we were made. Does he mean everything to you? That is the question. And that brings me to the third feature of divine creation. Number three. The method of creation. We've seen the time of creation, the God of creation. Now the method of creation. The method of creation. Because people just automatically assume, don't they, that naturalistic evolutionists and theistic creationists, people like me, that we have nothing in common. That that we don't share any of the same views when it comes to how the universe began. But plot twist... In January of 2013, an acclaimed physicist named Lawrence Krauss came up with a very intriguing idea for the origin of the universe. Now, before I share with you his origin of the universe, I should tell you that he is not a Christian. He is an atheist. He is an evolutionist. He totally rejects God and creationism, and he believes in the Big Bang Theory. No surprise. But he has a kind of a unique twist on this theory. You see, unlike other physicists who believe that matter stuff in some form always existed. That's where most physicists are at. Matter in some form always existed. This man, get this, he believes that at one time there was literally nothing and then all of a sudden the entire universe instantaneously came into being out of nothing. That's what he said. That's his twist on the Big Bang Theory. That recent scientific discoveries and evidence displayed that the universe, with all of its laws and all of its contents, came into being out of nothing. And that in the beginning, the universe simultaneously appeared together all at once. He wrote a book on that, and it was a bestseller. That's a pretty interesting theory. Unfortunately, I can't say that that's incredibly original. Because Moses himself wrote the exact same thing 3,000 years before Lawrence 
uh, Krauss ever even existed, and he didn't get paid a dime for it. And speaking of things spontaneously, or should I say supernaturally coming into existence, that's exactly what we see in verse 1. Look again at Genesis 1.1, the text we know so well, but do we know it? It says, in the beginning, God, here it is, created. Created the heavens and the earth. You know what just clobbers me every time I read those words? It's their breathtaking simplicity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. That's incredible. Because if the brevity of the words gives you the impression of how instantaneously the universe came into his existence, I think that's exactly why the words are so brief. In fact, just say, in the time that it takes you to say the words, in the beginning God created, is probably the time it took God to create. And what's incredible about this is that there's nothing complex about the statement. The Hebrew is simple, the grammar is basic, the vocabulary is common, there's no, there's no vivid language used to describe it, just the violent, explosive combustion of divine power that caused a universe to exist. That's it which is precisely how Psalm 33 put it, didn't it? By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his lips all their host. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood fast. Period. I mean, think about that. At one point in time, there was nothing. There was nothing. And we would try to picture in our minds, okay, what was it like before creation? We picture like this vast black emptiness. That didn't even exist. That was not there. There was nothing. And then there was something. With a mere whisper, the universe came into existence. And here's the thing about that small three-lettered verb, create, in Hebrew. That that word is very intriguing for two reasons. First, that particular word in Hebrew, bara is the word, that word is only used of God in the Old Testament. It's only used of God or divine beings in the Old Testament. Only them. A human is never said to create anything and that word is used to, to describe it. Ever. Ever. Which means this word, this particular word, highlights the activity of which only a God of matchless, infinite power is capable. That particular word semantically, linguistically captures the sovereign freedom and authority of a God who does whatever he darn well pleases. But the second intriguing thing about that word is that although the word by itself does not mean creation out of nothing, the word doesn't exactly mean that. However, what the word does mean is the creation of something without previously existing materials to do so. In other words, it only pictures the creative act itself without reference to any, any other materials that you use to 
to create it. So in other words, God did not take a trip to the cosmic Home Depot to load up supplies to make the universe. Rather, he created, he spoke the very supplies with which the universe is made into existence. Space and matter and a universe 93 billion light years across apparated into existence faster than the speed of light. And God did not use one previously existing proton to do so. And that word captures the essence of that. And that's exactly what the text says. There's no way around that. There's no way around that view. You just can't get around it. And so thank you, Dr. Krauss, for your kind contribution to the world, but we already knew that. I know that God created everything from nothing, and I know because the Bible tells me so. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we know that the Worlds, the ages, were fashioned by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. So do you see what this does? When you, when you contemplate in a new way, in a fresh way, what, I mean, what does this do to your worldview when you consider the fact that all things came into being out of nothing? It changes our focus, doesn't it? It tells us that ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction can never be found in what is made, but only in the infinite God who made it. That the meaning of life can never be found in creation, but only the God who infinitely, who eternally existed before creation. And do you want to hear something even more shocking? You see, God is not primarily conceived as an intelligent designer, or an unmoved mover. Rather, we find in the scriptures that the God who caused all things to exist came to earth as a literal, historical human being and walked on the very planet that he created. That's astonishing. I mean, we just, we're just so familiar with these realities that it doesn't jostle us. It doesn't stagger us. John 1.3 says, all things came into being through him. That is Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, and not even one thing has come into being which has come into being. In other words, if it exists, Jesus Christ created it. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. In the heavens and on the earth, whether visible or invisible, whether rulers or dominions or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Every single thing now that exists had a time when it didn't exist. And the only reason why it exists now is because Jesus Christ caused it to exist. Jesus Christ is your creator. And you need to call him that. Speak of him in that way to people. And what that means is, what that means is, is that the creator is not some absentee landlord managing affairs from afar. Rather, he actually came to the very planet that he created to save the very people who sinned against him. And what that means is, is that if someone does not embrace any worldview that does not embrace Jesus Christ, simply does not embrace the world that Jesus Christ created. Which brings us to the fourth feature of creation. Fourth feature, number four. The object of creation. The object of creation. Because it may surprise you to know that the man who coined the phrase survival of the fittest was not actually, not actually Charles Darwin. He didn't come up with that. He borrowed that. 
who came up with that phrase was a man named Herbert Spencer, who was a biologist in the late 1800s. He coined the phrase survival of the fittest. But you see, Herbert Spencer's real claim to fame is that he came up with what is called the, quote, categories of the knowable. The categories of the knowable. In other words, there are everything that exists fits in one of five categories, he said. And anything that doesn't fit in the, one of those five categories, it isn't real. It is a myth and a fairy tale. Again, he is an evolutionist. He was a secularist. He was, he was not a Christian in, in any way, uh, any sense of the term. And these are the categories of the normal. These are the five things. And anything that doesn't, in, doesn't fit in these, it does not exist. Here they are, in order. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Those are the five. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Those are the five categories. Everything that is true and real and, and is actually exists fits in one of those five categories. And if it doesn't, it's not real. But this skeptic, however, didn't know is that God already said that exact same thing 3,000 years before that in the first verse of the Bible. The categories of the knowable, the categories of the real are already in Genesis 1.1. Did you see them? See, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. The earth, that's matter. Do you see it? God is the real. God created the categories of the real. He is the ultimate reality with which all men must reckon. You cannot help but be created in His image, living in the universe that He created. That is who we are. And speaking of what he created, look at the object of the creation in verse 1. Again, you know it well. But do we know it? In the beginning, God created, here it is, the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. What, what does that mean? Well, that's a summary way of saying everything in existence everything that could possibly exist. But here's the interesting thing about verse 1. You see, it's not until verses 3 through 31 where God begins to fill in the blanks, right? It's not until verses 3 through 31 that God fills in the heavens and the earth with captivating details and cosmic creative wonders like stars and planets and oceans and trees and animals and people. But you see, all that's here in verse 1, the only thing that's here in verse 1 so far is an entire empty universe and a small, tiny, mass, little, infinitesimal speck called Earth. That's it. 93 billion light years of universe and Earth in verse 1. That's interesting. And Earth is unfurnished, it is unoccupied, it is empty at first, for now. And there the earth hangs on nothing, suspended by the matchless power and sovereignty of God. Isn't that interesting? And so the question is, why earth? Why not Saturn? Why not Jupiter? Why not Neptune? Why not some other planet a million miles away? Why earth and why earth first and by itself? Because that's what's being pictured here. Why this? I'll tell you why, and you know why. You know the answer. It's because this planet will be of particular concern to God. This was created first by itself because this tells us that this will have a unique focus of God's divine attention. 
You see, this planet will be the scene, it will be the setting, it will be the stage upon which God will unfold the plan of salvation predestined before the ages began. But you see, not all people get the correlation between the staggering size of the universe on the one hand and the tiny size of the earth in comparison on the other. Not all people get the correlation between those two things. For instance, Carl Sagan, one of the most celebrated, you know, um, astronomers and astrophysicists who was also an atheist, here's what he said. Here's what he said about the staggering size of the universe on the one hand and tiny little earth on the other. He said, who are we? Good question. We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy, tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. That's what he said. Now, do you hear the flaw in his logic? There's a huge flaw there. There's a massive assumption laying there. The flaw is because the universe is so massive and we are so small, therefore, obviously, life is insignificant and has no meaning. That's the logic. And I just want you to know he missed the entire point of everything. He missed the entire point. You mean to tell me that this genius could look through the Hubble telescope at the endless cosmic wonders of the universe and the only conclusion to which he could come is that life is meaningless and has no value? It's exactly the opposite. The earth is tiny and the universe is massive, not because we don't matter, but because it's God's way of grabbing us by the shoulders and making us look at the endless stretches of space and saying, do you see that? I am a little bit like that. The unspeakable Depths of the universe and the cosmic wonders that NASA will never, ever see are nothing more than a tiny microscopic glimpse and picture of who I am. That's the point. That's the point. Because did you know that one light year, just one light year, is 5.8 trillion miles? One light year. And did you know that the next closest star other than the sun is a mere five light years away. The next closest star other than the sun is a mere five light years away. That means that the closest star other than the sun is 29 trillion miles away. And did you know that it's estimated, the best you can tell, if you can tell something like this, that the universe is at least 93 billion light years across, they think. 93 billion light years across. 93 billion and one light year is 5.8 trillion miles. The sun, a pathetically small star by most standards, has a radius of 432,288 miles. That's the, that's the radius of the sun. The earth has a radius of about 4,000 miles. So that means that the sun is 100 time, 109 times larger than the earth. Well, that's massive, right? No, the sun is a toy. It is a toy. Because did you know 
that they know of stars whose radius is three billion miles. Stars exist with a radius of three billion miles. One star, three billion miles across. Just let that sit there. Here's another consideration. At the speed of light, not sound, the speed of light, you could get to Pluto in five hours. At the speed of light, you get there in five hours. At regular speed, you could get there in nine and a half years if you traveled a million miles a day. Million miles a day, you'd get there in nine and a half years. Great. That doesn't seem so bad. Okay, well, what if you wanted to jaunt over to the next closest galaxy? Okay, no problem. At the speed of light, it would take you 25,000 years to get there. 25,000 years to get to the next closest galaxy. 25,000 years. And if you wanted to reach what they think could possibly potentially be the furthest or one of the furthest galaxies away, if you traveled at 10 and a half miles a second, 10 and a half miles a second, it would take you 225 trillion, trillion years to get there. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is that God spoke all of that into existence in an instant out of nothing. Which means, which tells us that the creation compared to the creator is like holding a candle to the sun. That's the only worldview. That's a good worldview. With a sovereign creator at the center. It holds everything together, doesn't it? It holds everything together. And speaking of worldviews, I need you to see that there is no other worldview, no other alternative worldview that makes sense. They don't work. They don't fit. They don't make sense. They are internally inconsistent. They don't match up. And so now that we have the right worldview from the first verse of the Bible, I now give you ten inadequate worldviews. Ten inadequate worldviews that cannot and will not make sense out of life. Cannot, will not give you ultimate meaning, significance, and satisfaction. Here they are. Number one, atheism. Atheism. That is, the disbelief in or the denial of God. And it doesn't work. Genesis 1.1 beats that. Why? Because at its root, atheism is not built on facts, but only assumptions. Atheism is built on assumptions. At the end of the day, the fatal flaw of atheism is the assumption that there was nothing, and nothing happened to nothing, and nothing magically exploded, creating everything. And everything rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits that formed a universe filled with cosmic order and beauty and people who know that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. And that doesn't work if there is no God. Number two, agnosticism. Agnosticism. And by the way, I'm going fast here. So if I don't hit your favorite argument, uh, don't be mad. Number two, agnosticism. That is the view that claims that knowledge of the supernatural is unknown or can't be known. That's agnosticism. You can't know it or it is unknown and it doesn't work. Genesis 1.1 beats that. Why? Because God can be known. He has spoken. He has revealed himself through creation. And he's revealed himself in a book that has withstood the test of time and unbelievable scrutiny for centuries. It doesn't hold up. 
Number three, naturalism. Naturalism, that is the view that says there is no God and that everything that exists has a perfectly reasonable, logical, natural explanation and that all spiritual explanations are thus bogus and unnecessary. No God, no supernatural, no creation, no miracles, no virgin birth, no resurrection, and it doesn't work. Genesis 1-1 beats that. Why? Because, listen carefully, even the naturalist has to admit that something unusual and unnatural must have happened to make the universe what it is, and the only explanation of something of that magnitude is a sovereign God who caused it to exist. Number four, Darwinism. Darwinism, that is evolution, and it doesn't work. Genesis 1-1 beats that. Why? Because, get this now, the foundational starting point of evolution is that life came from non-life. In other words, evolution teaches that in some ancient theoretical pond filled with proteins and chemicals and acids that life spontaneously invented itself, and yet that has never happened in any science experiment in the history of the world. Life does not come from non-life without human or divine manipulation, which means the very foundation of the evolutionary theory is pure conjecture that violates the very laws of science to substantiate its claims doesn't work. Number five, secularism. Secularism, which is basically the view, the worldview that says that if God exists, which he probably doesn't, but if he exists, that he should keep his nose out of our business. This is the repercussions of the man-centered free will thinking. There should be a divide between the sacred and secular, that there are arenas and situations in which God has no place and where he is not welcome. We live in a secular society. You feel it, right? I mean, it's different in Texas. When I heard that in Texas they pray at like, at like government meetings in downtown Arlington, I was shocked. I was shocked. You would never have that in Washington. Ever. Unbelievable. And yet, and yet secularism, it's not true. It doesn't work. Genesis 1-1 beats that. Why? Because this is God's universe. This is his world. This is his plan. We are his creation. There's no such thing as secular. Everything is sacred and it all belongs to him. Number six, humanism. Humanism, the attempt by human beings to give human beings the supreme place of importance in the universe instead of the God who created them. And it doesn't work. Genesis 1-1 beats that. Why? Because God rules everything. He is infinite. We are finite. He is eternal. We are temporal. He rules. We are ruled. He gives life. We receive it. He sustains. We are sustained. Humanism is living in a dream world. It's delusional. The universe does not exist to make a big deal about us, but to make an infinitely big deal about the God who created us. Number seven, empiricism. Empiricism. That is the belief that says that if you can't feel it, taste it, touch it, see it, or smell it, that it's not real. And since we can't perceive God, since we can't experience God by our sense perceptions, that therefore he isn't real. And it doesn't work. Genesis 1-1 beats that. 
How? Why? Because everything that you feel, taste, see, and touch is made by God and therefore is inherent proof that he is real and that he deserves our allegiance. I don't care what the philosophers say. Their arguments are meaningless to me because the worldview of the Bible is the heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been what? Clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. What has been made. Number nine, pluralism. Actually, eight. Number eight, pluralism. That is the worldview that says that everybody's beliefs about life and reality are equally valid and that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Anything goes pretty much, and that is preposterous. Genesis 1.1 beats that. Why? Because as finite created people, who are we to think that we make the rules? We are not the arbiters of truth. That is, that is the pinnacle of human arrogance to say that we are the ones who define the rules, that we are the arbiters of truth. We do not have the right to declare all things to be equally valid. That is not our call. Number nine, nihilism. Nihilism, that is the view that says that life is meaningless and without value. And guess what? Without a sovereign creator at the center, it's right. That's right. Without God at the center, nihilism, their, their assertion is correct. There is no meaning. But you see, It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way because all things only have ultimate meaning when they are understood in relation to the God who spoke all things into existence. Therefore, Genesis 1-1 beats that. And then finally, number 10, postmodernism. Postmodernism. That is the worldview that says that there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth, and that, if it's, and, that it's only, and that if it's true, it's only true for you, and it's not absolutely true for everybody, and that's a self-defeating statement. It doesn't work. Genesis 1.1 beats that. Why? Because you can't, you, you can't, to deny absolute truth is to make an absolute statement, right? You can't use reason to prove that reason is false, And the very fact that people use reason proves that they are created by a reasonable God who gave them the ability to reason. Bottom line, God is objective. God is absolute. God is reality. And what he says goes, whether everybody believes it or nobody believes it. And the rules don't change simply because of our feelings. My point is very simply this. Not only is this a call, for you to embrace literal six-day creation as the only option in the text, because that is the only option in the text. But this is also a call to declare to you that without the beginning, we can have no meaning. That there's no happily ever after if you don't have a once upon a time. And once upon a time, the eternal God who never had a beginning spoke and caused all things to come into existence. And in that moment, the drama of redemption began. And at the center of that plan is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he is not just a man, he is God. And he didn't just live, he died. 
And he didn't just die, but the death that he died, he died for sinners in their place. And he didn't just die, he lived. He lived again. He gave the grave a beatdown. He rose from the dead right this minute. He reigns in heaven. And right now, he offers ultimate meaning and significance and salvation to anyone who embraces, yields to him by faith in him alone. The question is, have you taken him up on his offer? Don't just assume have you done so? Because he doesn't ask for much. Jesus Christ does not ask for much. All he's after is your entire life and everything in it. That's it. And if that seems like too steep a price to pay, it's not. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? So to persuade you to yield if you haven't done so, I leave you with the words of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Looked at a crowd not too terribly different from this one. And he said this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to be good thinkers. Oh Lord, help us to really think hard about these issues, to be able to reason with people in the public square, to not shy away from arguments that are hard for us to handle, and to not feel at the same time, Lord, that we have to be so versed in philosophy that we can't say anything to anyone unless we've read a bunch of big, long, boring, stuffy books that we don't understand. Lord, the worldview, the right worldview, the only one that makes sense is here in the pages of Scripture. And I pray that we would boldly lay down our lives for that. Let us boldly declare the gospel, knowing that the power of the gospel itself is the power your power to save, to bring to salvation, whether the Jew or the Greek, and that it is powerful itself. It is the weapon you use to cut through all of the bogus, silly, foolish, smokescreen arguments that don't add up in the end, to cut through all that, even if we don't know how to refute them. It doesn't matter. Oh, Lord, make our tongues sharp as a two-edged sword with the proclamation of the gospel. Oh Lord, let us look at neighbors differently, family members differently. Let us not be comfortable with their status before you. Help us, Lord, as we venture out into a world that's uncertain, unpredictable for us anyway, but is ruled by you because you are the sovereign creator of all things. And it's in the matchless name of Christ that we pray.